Thank you for your presence this morning. If you are a visitor with us, we hope that you'll find that the services are according to God's will, that you are comfortable in them, and that the things that I have to say come from the scriptures, and they are the truth, for that's my desire this morning. As Jason, excuse me, as Justin mentioned this morning, we have been going through a series of lessons starting last month, and my topic that I got picked upon to do was Christ is Lord. Now, there's another part of that because he's not just Lord. When you look through the scriptures, everything is about Jesus. From the beginning until the end, the Alpha and the Omega, it's about Jesus. And he is Lord. Now, we've been using the Great Commission that called the, the verses called the Great Commission for all of these lessons is a, is a beginning point. And Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Ian emphasized last week, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. If all power is given under Jesus Christ in heaven and earth, that makes him Lord. Now, we don't like to end our lesson without offering the invitation. For he's Lord, and it's it. We don't have to worry about it anymore. But I would think that we'd go a little deeper in the scriptures than that. In Philippians, the second chapter, the ninth verse says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that is the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is who? He is Lord, to the glory of God the Father term Christ, defined as the anointed one or the chosen one. He was chosen by God. He was given the authority by God to have the power over everything. And he is Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is the Lord. All power is given unto him in heaven and earth. In Ephesians 1 and 21, it says, Far above all principalities and powers and mights and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, speaking uh, God putting all things under Jesus' feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All power is given unto him. God gave it to him, and he fills everything. He is all that counts. It's all about Jesus. We know back that when Adam and Eve sinned and were pushed out of the garden, the very familiar group of scriptures there we find in Genesis, the third chapter, where it's the first prophecy or the first promise that God gave to mankind that Christ would come. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shall thy go, and dust shall thy eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The first prophecy that God promised that there would be someone, a Messiah, that would come and would squash the devil, would bruise his head. 1 Corinthians 15 and 21 says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all, for as in Adam all died, even so Christ shall be 
we be made alive. God's promise is that Christ would come and he would bring man back to him. He would save us. Ephesians 1 and 9 says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, God's good pleasure, which he hath proposed, purposed, sorry, in his heart, in himself, that in the dispensation and the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. It was God's good pleasure, and it was in a particular time that he set that Christ would come and God would put everything under him. In Luke 1, we find where John the Baptist's father was praising God when he was able to speak. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. God's promise as he promises, he does not lie, and they come true. And they came true at a specific time that he set. I want to speak just a minute about the lineage of Jesus Christ. Back, especially in the time of Christ, the Jews took great pride that they could trace their, their heritage all the way back to Abraham. They were Abraham's seed, that what's made them Jews and the chosen children of God, and they took great pride in that. The new king of England, he can trace his heritage back for many generations. He was born to be king. Well, Christ's lineage is an interesting lineage. The first one is given to us in Matthew, the first chapter. It says, the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas, and his brethren, and so on and so on until we get to the 14th verse. It says, and Elud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Methan, and Methan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph. Who was Joseph? He was the son of Mary. He was not the father of Jesus. The scriptures are very plain. He was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. The person doing this lineage wanted to make sure that it was the lineage of Joseph, but it wasn't the lineage of Jesus Christ. It was the lineage of his father on earth. Joseph had a purpose. He taught Jesus a skill. He helped raise Jesus from a child. But he wasn't his biological father, as we know. Now, Luke is interesting because it starts at the top and goes the other direction through Mary. For it says there, and Jesus himself begat, began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Matat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of... Uh, Melchi, which was the son of Jan- uh, Jana, and which is the son of Joseph. I butchered a couple of those. If you continue reading on down in Luke, the 30th, 3rd chapter, the 38th verse, it says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam. This lineage goes all the way, way past Abraham. It goes all the way back to Adam. And who was Adam? He was the son of God. He was not born to this earth he was created by God and he was called the son of God all through the new testament we read about how Jesus is called what the son of God Mary was his mother the Holy Spirit was his father 
Lonnie read for us there in Matthew, the 16th chapter, about what's called the great confession that Peter made. But the scriptures start out by saying that they were in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And I want to tell you something about Caesarea Philippi. I stole one of Justin's maps so that we could have it. And here is Caesarea Philippi. It is in the very northern part of the promised land when Joshua came across the Jordan River. It's way up here. Jesus spent most of his three years in Capernaum, which is here, round about the Sea of Galilee. It's 40 miles from Caesarea to, to, I mean, from Capernaum to Caesarea Philippi. It wasn't an afternoon walk that, well, let's go walk out here and we'll talk a while. There had to be a reason why he went 40 miles with his disciples. It was things that Jesus did and the scriptures write down weren't happenstance. They had a purpose. We know that. I'm going to back up one slide. The both places where this is mentioned, Matthew 16 and Mark 8, says there where Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and there in Mark 8, and Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a town, but it was also the region, the area, and there were small communities evidently that was like these are the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Just like if someone says, where do you live? You say, I live in Houston. Well, that might mean they live in Katy, or they might live in Perilyn, or there are 15 other little towns around Houston, but it's in general the area of Houston. Well, in general, it was Caesarea Philippi, the area around the city. Now, let me tell you about the city. The city was a pagan city. They worshipped a god called Pan, P-A-N. There was half goat and half man. Their religion was one of drunkenness, a debauchery, immoral immorality, sexual immorality. Everything you could think of that's evil is what they worshipped in this town. There wasn't a, a faithful Jew anywhere that would come within miles of Caesarea Philippi. But what did the scriptures say? Jesus was there. His disciples were there. Now, knowing that, little tidbit of information, let's read again the confession. Jesus said, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter said unto him, and said that thou art Christ, the Son of God, the anointed one. Jesus said unto thee that thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They were in an evil country. They were in an evil place. People that were worshiping idols and deities, doing all kinds of what we would call evil things. And Jesus said, that's not going to prevail against me. The gates of hell will not prevail. The beautiful words that we find in John, the first chapter, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The old English here is hard for me to understand, and I like the Revised Standard Edition that says, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The devil, through Herod, killed all baby boys two years and under and trying to destroy Jesus. didn't work. The devil used his own people to crucify him on the cross. A great victory for the devil. No, it was God's plan. And the victory came when Christ raised from the dead. We've been reading in Acts of the persecution of the Christians 
says after Stephen was stoned, it spread the gospel, the persecution. They left and they spread out. And what they did, it was multiplying and growing. Darkness had not overcome it. We find that the Roman Empire basically decided to destroy Christianity. They tortured Christians. They killed Christians, martyred Christians, burned Christians. They did it, in some cases, just for entertainment. You know what happened 500 years after Christ lived on this earth? Constantine proclaimed to the Roman government that the, Christ, that the religion of Christianity was now the official religion of Rome. What a change. Darkness has not overcome it. You and I today in modern times, we look out and there's evil everywhere. There's immorality everywhere. There are things out there that can discourage you from being a Christian. But we need to remember that darkness has not overcome it and will not. And there's a reason for that. First of all, darkness always fades before the light of the sun. Evil cannot stand up in that which is good and that which is of the Lord, the Christ. First John in 4 and 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. When you get discouraged about the evil around about you, remember that Christ is Lord and he will always overcome. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't get discouraged because of the evil around us, but instead be good. Look unto the Savior, knowing that he is the Lord and he will win. Now we know that the Bible is divided into chapters and verse, but that's done by man. And when these men wrote these books, in this case Matthew, it was a continuous reading. And we find there in the 16th chapter where we have Peter's confession that Right after that, in Matthew, the 17th chapter, it says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. Now I said they were 40 miles from home. It says six days later they went up into a high mountain. We don't know which mountain it is. But from Caesarea Philippi is the foothills of hills, steep hills that go all the way to Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in Israel. These hills are extremely steep. I've seen some of them. They're very much peaks. They're, you might call them small mountains, but they were like this. They're not flat, and there are lots of them. They're, today, in modern days, there is no roads to speak of. There's no people that live there to speak of. It's wilderness. It's deserted because the land is too rough. Jesus took three of his disciples out there, and it, was more, it wasn't a hike. It was a climb to get to one of the tops of one of these mountains. And was the contiguous was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, his raiment was white as light, and behold, there appeared in him Moses, Elias, talking with him. Have you ever thought about that? How did the three disciples know that this was Moses and Elias? There wasn't a Polaroid picture. There wasn't a painting that shows the likeness of who these people were. Did Jesus introduce them? This is my friend Moses and Elias. Or did the Spirit give it to them that they knew automatically who this must be? Peter seems to always have to have something to say. And he had to have something to say. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet speak, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Interesting. Those three men had been raised as faithful Jews. 
They believed in Moses. They believed in the law. He was the, quote, the lawgiver. Listen unto what Moses had to say. No, God said, listen to Jesus. Hear ye him. All the way back in Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter. I think Ian used this last week. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken, hearken, ye shall listen to, ye shall pay attention to. That was Moses speaking to the children. Just a little bit farther down, God is speaking to Moses again. And he says, I will raise them up a prophet from among the brethren like unto thee and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. There's going to be a consequence for those that don't pay attention to what the Messiah has to say what the Christ that God sent us has to say, I'll require it of them. That means there will be a, a reckoning. There will be a, something to be done if you don't pay attention. In 1 Timothy 6, the last there of Timothy, it says, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only hath immortality. He's the only one that can give immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto whom no man hath seen nor can see to whom be honor and power everlasting amen jesus said of himself in mark 13 and 31 heaven and earth shall pass away but my words shall not pass away what did god say i will require it of them they better hearken they better understand what he has to say because he is my christ he is the Lord, and what he says is what needs to be done. There's an interesting healing that we find in Mark, the fifth chapter. There was a man there that was possessed with many devils or evil spirits. He lived in the cemetery. No man could chain him down. He was so wild. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I abjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of this man, thou unclean spirit. And he said unto him, What is your name? He answered and saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. If you look in Matthew's account in the 8th chapter, it says, What have ye we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? The Jewish leaders of the time of Christ, for the most part, rejected, rejected Jesus as the Messiah and the Lord and the Son of God. The devils didn't. They knew who he was. They wanted to know, are you here to torment us now before hell is coming? Even it was no question to them who had power, and who was the Lord. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter in them, into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place and in the sea, and there was about 2,000 and were choked in the sea, drowned in the sea. I want to emphasize, and forthwith Jesus gave them leave. Now, they knew that Jesus was the Son of God. They said that. They knew he was Lord, and they knew he had complete control. In the 1600s, when the, the King James Version was translated, they understood the phrase, give them leave. That's a specific phrase given to royalty. 
given to the king or to the Lord or to the prince because you could not leave his presence until he told you you could. It was an important phrase to them in the 1600s. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, gave them the authority to move, to, do some, to go on. Christ is our Savior. He's also our priest. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he hath offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is our Savior. He is our priest. And he offers sacrifice for our sins. Acts 4 and 12 says, Neither is there any salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's an important sentence. The largest religions in this world today are called Eastern religions, made mostly of Buddhist and Hindu. The Hindu have circumstance and they meditate. That's not going to save them. Buddha cannot save you. Putting incense and altars to the altar of Buddha will not save you. Muhammad will not save you. Only Christ can save. He's the only one that has immortality. Moses can't save you. No, only Jesus Christ can save. In Revelations 5, and they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seal thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Who was it that was singing this new song? And I beheld and I heard the voices of many angels round about the throne. And the beast and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. If you want to do the math, that's 100 million creatures around the throne. And the number of them was, uh, was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. If you want to use this literally, literally, that means add three more zeros and three more zeros. When you do that, that's more creatures than man has ever had or existed on this world. But you can say, well, it's not really literal, and I'll, I'll go with that. It's not. But what it is is a bunch. It's a massive amount. It's without number around the throne of God, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He's Lord. He's worthy to receive all those things. There's a prophetic, prophetic, Warning we find in Psalms, the second chapter, in the 10th verse. The writer says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he by him be angry and ye perish from the way. Who, are, who is our Lord? Jesus Christ. Who do we need to obey? Jesus Christ. Whose Son do we need to kiss? Jesus Christ. And those that don't will perish when his wrath is kindled but a little. How much wrath does God have to have to destroy you and me? Not much. And he said, he told Moses way back in Deuteronomy as we had earlier in the lesson, there's going to be consequences for not doing what he says to do, for not paying attention to the Christ, the Lord. The good news is, though, in Psalms 2 and 10, Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. If you trust the Lord, you're blessed. If you do what he tells us to do, you're blessed. For he is Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. 
It's all about Jesus for he's Lord. I hope there's been something in the lesson this morning to encourage you to think along the lines of, of who this one that we call our, the Messiah that we call our Savior really is. All power is given to him in heaven and earth. You and I have an opportunity to join him, join the church that he established, to have our sins washed away because that's why God sent him was to reconcile mankind to God. And that happens through believing in Jesus, confessing his name, repenting and having your sins washed away. By doing so, we, have, we are under the umbrella of the ruler and the Lord of everything. If you're subject to gospel call, we ask you to come as we stand and sing a couple of verses of the song selected.